You're listening to a University College Dublin Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, the first of three keynotes from the final In Search of Transcultural Memory in Europe conference. The conference, entitled Locating and Dislocating Memory, featured more than 80 speakers across 22 panels over three days in University College Dublin in September 2016. This podcast features Professor Françoise Hergé from the Collège d'Etudes Mondiales in Paris. Her lecture, Decolonizing Europe, on the boomerang effect of colonialism, memory and dislocation, was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. I want, of course, first to thank the organiser for inviting me and for you know, giving me the opportunity to speak at this conference. I'm not a scholar of memory studies, uh, but I have been involved you know, in the issue of memories and public space through my position as a president of the Committee for the Memory and Slaver- uh, History of Slavery, following the recognition by the French state of slave trade and slavery as crime against humanity, which meant effectively wondering how this history will you know, come into the public space in terms of culture, in terms of art, in terms of education and research. And I may say that you know, the law was voted in 2001, we are in 2016, and things have barely moved ahead. And also, so, and my memory has been, of course, important for me in my activism around the return of colonial memory in the political and cultural debate in France and Europe, you know, what it means to be European and what to be a citizen. So my title is Decolonizing Europe on the Boomerang Effect of Colonialism, Memory and Dislocation. And I could have dreamed of a better introduction to my talk than the controversy around the Burkini ban implemented in a number of French cities to discuss what I plan to do, the boomerang effect of colonialism, memory and dislocation in the field of European feminism, though I will focus a little on France to avoid you know, generalization. I will look via the Burkini ban as a process of erasure of memory of locating, locating, relocating, and dislocating that led on the one hand to the forgetting of the matrix of the French liberation movement, decolonization, and the war in Algeria, and to the nationalization of feminism in France, what in French is called fémo-nationalisme, and I will call it national feminism, and on the other hand, the emergence of decolonial feminism and its struggle for the relocation of different memories. I will look uh, at the way in which the boomerang effect produced different answers and practices of location and relocation of memory, and how the emergence of the colonial feminism contributes to the decolonization of Europe, which is the only way to go beyond the endless repetition of the boomerang effect of colonialism. In other words, Europe must undergo its own process of decolonization, and minority in Europe have been very active the most active, in fact, in the process. Through my talk, I will try to answer a key question raised by the organizer. What are the ethical challenges in the act of location and definition of memory? In in my case, I distinguish the interests at stake in hegemonic location and relocation of memories from the interests of those engaged of locating and relocating decolonial memories in Europe. 
about also what the organizer called Europe and the memory of the troubled 20th century. I look at the memories that have been mostly erased from Europe, the memory of a long history of slavery, colonialism, and imperialism outside of Europe. And I don't want to get into the fact that, you know, the country which did not, uh, you know, uh, were not directly active in slavery and colonialism. We know that partly, you know, most of Europe benefited from that accumulation of wealth. The word erase is perhaps wrong. You know, there are museums about slavery or the non-colonialism and imperialism. There are national days of celebration of the abolition of slavery. There are monuments, work by artists, filmmakers, writers, poets, and musicians. What I mean, perhaps, is that I do not think that the way in which slavery, colonialism, and imperialism have contaminated European thought and democracy and social movements like feminism have been fully understood so that understanding can contribute to the decolonization of Europe. Only the decolonization and the denationalization of European history will contribute to the dismantle of Eurocentrism and to the writing of a new cartography of cross, multilevel, and even conflicting memory. A decolonial cartography of Europe will mean looking at unstudied nodes of cultural influence and dissemination in the aim of decentralizing a West-West axis that still dominates, thus fostering discussion that grant a voice to the circulation of ideas, artistic and cultural practice that materialize outside official political power structure. The revelation of crossroad and friction in political, cultural, and artistic production, material culture, and political resistance will help to reconsider different accounts of modernity and its discontent displaying alternative to the prevailing European vision in Europe itself. So to explore this different point, I borrow you know, theoretical tools from black, Latin, and global South feminists and from the school of decolonial thought. From feminists of color, I borrow the idea of decentering the dominant understanding of difference in oppositional terms, which Gloria and Zauda reconfigure through a radical relationality and interconnectivity. And from Audre Lord, the idea of transforming creatively difference to make it the basis of commonality and interdependency. In her past-breaking essay, The Master Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master House, Lord posits the idea of interdependency of our mutual non-dominant differences to articulate relation and political imagination. In other words, to engage difference creatively and generatively beyond mere tolerance. The hegemonic notion of tolerance so strong in European discourse is thus questioned for its refusal to consider structural inequalities and for situating difference as strictly belonging to the realm of individual relation. From decolonial thought, I borrow the notion of coloniality of power, which Hannibal Quirano describes thus. And I quote, one of the fundamental axes of this model of power is a social classification of the world population around the idea of race, a mental construction that expresses the basic of experience of colonial domination and pervades the most important dimension of global power, including specific rationality, Eurocentrism. The constitution of Europe as a new identity needed the elaboration of a Eurocentric perspective of knowledge and a theoretical perspective on the idea of race as a naturalization of colonial relation between European and non-European. End of the quote. 
And from historian, I borrow the methodology of global history and connected history. You know, the need to look transversally to challenge the spatiality and temporality of memory that are presented as natural and perhaps to look at their racialized and gendered frame. The idea that Europe could be contaminated by ideas and practices that contradicted its funding principle emerged with the condemnation of slave trade and slavery. There were two understandings of that contamination. From a conservative point of view, the fear of miscegenation and degeneration through exposure to non-European and non-white to other cultures and civilization. From the anti-slavery and anti-colonialist point of view, Europe could not enslave and colonize without being, in return, contaminated by these discourses and practices. It was an inevitable process, critic of slavery and colonialism said. And here I want to quote Aimé Césaire in the you know, second part of the 20th century, so quite late in that you know, tradition. Within course on colonialism, published in 1950, described the process in this term. And I quote, First, we must study how colonization works to decivilize the colonizer, to brutalize him in the true sense of the word, to degrade him, to awaken him to buried instinct, to violence, race hatred, and moral relativism. And we must show that each time a head is cut off or an eye is put out in Vietnam and in France, they accept the fact. Each time a little girl is raped and in France, they accept the fact. Each time a Madagascan is tortured and in France, they accept the fact. Civilization acquire another dead weight. A universal regression takes place, a gangrene set in, a center of infection began to spread. And at the end of all these treaties that have been violated, all these lies that have been propagated, all these punitive exhibitions that have been tolerated, all these prisoners who have been tied up and interrogated, all these patriots who have been tortured at the end of all the racial pride that have been encouraged, a poison has been instilled in the vein of Europe, and slowly but surely the continent proceeds towards savagery. savagery. And then White Friday, it is awakened by a terrific reverse shock, by a boomerang effect. Before going further, I want to say that I think we are living one moment in a succession of a reverse shock of colonialism, imperialism. But this time, what is perhaps more important, you know, more striking, it's happening in the art of Europe. It's not happening somewhere. It's destabilizing narrative and representation of memory, history, and emancipation. It's happening again in the art of Europe. Césaire said that the first time it was, was Nazism. Migrant and refugee coming to escape wars and poverty caused by the global axis of inequality. Financialization and capital of capital and the reconfiguration of its center and periphery in Europe itself, reconfiguration of femininity and masculinity, increased inequality, extreme xenophobia, and the construction of an internal enemy, the Muslim. The new form of fascism and political of death that I'm not denying and that are happening, you know, in Europe. Cannot be, uh, must be addressed along with the violence of a global counter-revolution with new form of dispossession, colonization, and extraction. I will first uh, summarize the Bukini Ben controversy. 
and the different feminist position in answer. Then go back to the 1950s and French feminist movement, their struggle, the position of feminists during the Algerian war, and finally the emergence of the 1970s French liberation movement, and discuss why the matrix of decolonization was forgotten, and what were the consequences of this forgetting, and the reconfiguration, the relocating of memory in Europe. I will then look at how in the 1960s, 80s, we move progressivism from the notion of women's liberation to the notion of women's right, and how the later became slowly associated with imperialism and racial patriarchy, and how with national feminism, the space and time of women's struggle became framed exclusively within the border of Western Europe. And my final point would be about the emergence of a decolonial feminism that seeks to relocate and dislocate memory by suggesting its own relocation and dislocation of memory. So the book in Ivan, very quickly, uh, it's, one, it's just one of controversy among dozens of others that in the last 30 years have targeted Muslim women in France. It started, you know, in the mid-1980s, and in 1989, with the expulsion from school of two young women wearing the veil, and the ban in 2004 of, you know, ostentatious religious sign in school, and in 2010 the ban of, you know, of women from wearing the burqa, despite fewer than 2,000 women in France at the time were wearing the garment. Muslim women became the target of French uh, feminist republicanism. So the last summer, in 30, you know, more than 30 municipalities, all in the French Riviera, and that has, you know, uh, Bearing. May I forbear the Burkini, you know, swimsuit that cover uh, arms, uh, arms, legs, and head on their beach, and has the police to enforce the measure. Uh, Villeneuve Loubet, uh, which is a seaside resort, was the first to adopt the ban. The, uh, the ordinance in question did not mention Islam or the Burkini explicitly. It banned uh, bathing attire that was not appropriate and that was not respectful of good morals and of secularism, or did not respect hygiene and security rules. And the Burkinian ban become, became a topic of global controversy after image uh, you know, spread online of a woman being forced by a group of male officers to remove her clothing at a beach in Nice. So we see the woman, she's sleeping on the beach and the four uh, uh, cops arriving and forcing her to uh, undress and, uh, you know, and, of, and fining her for having been on the beach with her head and her arms being covered. And the kind of caution that was followed by, you know, either, I mean, the body of woman on the, on the left uh, with the uh, open, I mean, French police, and on the right, on the other side of the Mediterranean, with other men showing, you know, of course, that... To do. And then, you know, at the end, and how this was effectively shown by feminists, how, you know, whether, you know, either way you are dressed, anyway, will never be good enough. So, um, last Friday, the highest administrative court in France overturned the trans ban, setting a precedent that challenged similar bans in the other municipality. It made clear that the ban could be, you know, Sorry, in the ruling, the court found that the town had violated civil liberty, including freedom of movement and religious freedom, and that official has failed to show that the swimwear posed a threat to public order. Later that same day, Prime Minister Manuel Valls said in a statement on his Facebook page that the ruling, I quote, does not exhaust the debate that has happened 
opened up in our society on the question of the Burkini. He likened the Burkini to a form of enslavement and argued in his comment that condemning the Burkini in no way questioned individual liberty. And he has added recently that the breast of Marianne, the symbol of the Republic, is naked because she feeds the people and she's not veiled because she's free. Socialist Party Minister for Family, Children and Women's Rights, all this together, Laurence Rossignol defended the ban and said that the Burkini is deeply archaic and that its purpose is to hide women's body in order to better control them. And last April, she had compared Muslim women who chose to wear the well to American Negroes, uh, les Negres Américains, who supported slavery. From the left to the right, there was an agreement that the Burkini violates French Republican values and women's rights. Many French feminists took the position that wearing the veil or other Muslim dress oppressed women and, uh, and they back limit, limitation on wearing such attire in public. Caroline Fouras was published very often on the media, declared that wearing a burkini was sending a message to women who are wearing, wearing a bikini that they are indecent. The association Ose Le Féministe said that women were not only portionally being deprived of their right by their patriarchal religion, but the French government was also forcing them. So, I mean, um, I will close on that. I want just to set out, you know, this, this different position and decolonial feminists in France denounced the racist patriarchy and the obsession of the state against, you know, about Muslim women for the last decades. So now I want to go back and to explain to us why we, uh, you know, came to that national feminism and a rapid historical summary. After World War II, the Fourth Republic was established and reconstruction was the objective of infrastructure de deeply damaged by bombing, but also of social arrangement. You know, the, the force on the left wanted to implement the program of the National Council of Resistance, which in March 1945, you know, a long calling for resistance, spoke of the necessity to implement higher salaries, a national insurance system, free education for all, and the extension of political, social, and economic rights to indigenous and colonized people. Um, you know, with the liberation of, of France, Europe, and the world beyond uh, from Nazism, to which soldiers and material resources of the colonial empires had so greatly contributed, new answers had to be given to demand for more equality. French national reconstruction occurred in a deeply transformed global field. The European community was being built, and the goal, you know, as, at the time was, was defined as creating a large common market in Europe, uh, there were still dictatorships in Europe then, Spain and Portugal, and later the military dictatorship in Greece. The context was also one of decolonization and the crumbling of European colonial empire. The Cold War was beginning to divide the world into free and unfree world. French capital, uh, capitalism was reconfiguring itself in the context of a global transformation of capital and banking. And racism was universally condemned, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights made clear that racism and colonization were no longer acceptable in the new global order. Form of tutorship has to be imagined to maintain access to material and human resources, but formal recognition of equality was necessary. In the French colonial empire, insurrection and the brutal repression by French armies thought that the, showed that the principle of autodetermination 
was not would not be respected. You know, there is Setif and Gelman, 1945, the war in China, which starts in 1946, the, the brutal crushing of the Madagascar insurrection in 1947, and in 1954, the you know, beginning of the start in Algeria. But the French state, you know, not only contributed to the elaboration of the Universal Declaration of Rights and signed it, it was also, a, you know, a confounder of the United Nations. So it was very important to find a new a new vocabulary, a new configuration of what was France and who was French, a new cartography that will keep nonetheless the different territory but redefine who was in there. In France, women obtained the right to vote in 1945. Four years later, in 1949, the publication of the second sex by Simone de Beauvoir marked the return of feminism. But the author, who will illustrate herself later with her condemnation of colonial war, did not have a word on colonized women in the French Empire. In the 1950s, during the 1950s, women were organized as women in the Communist Party or Christian Association or Protestant Association. And women were gaining space in the public uh, and works uh, place, and it was a debate on birth control that started to emerge, dividing, in fact, women organization. Uh, so all this, I mean, there was already something happening in the 1950s around the question of the control of women, of their body, but not, and in the International Federation of Women, which was close to the Communist Party, you had condemnation of colonialism and connection with women organizations in the French colonial empires, but there was no really reflection on, on the way in which colonialism has contaminated French democracy and republic. Okay, fast forward to the Algerian war. Torture against women and well-publicized trials brought the specific situation of colonized women to the core. Rape as a weapon of war and testimony of soldiers that were censored, you know, showed that rape was encouraged and sanctioned by military authority. The issue of the veil that we see, you know, in this uh, poster, uh, military poster, you know, uh, you aren't you, you know, uh, beautiful, uh, take your veil well away. Um, so that was very important in the issue of the veil, which was central to the representation of Algerian women oppressed by Arab men and emancipated by French men. The French Republic was shown as bringing rights and freedom to Algerian women and the Algerian society as being particularly oppressive towards women. Torture and unwilling were both practices of Republican postcolonial politics, keep the colonial empire, but present the Republic as bringing progress and the veil unveiling women was fundamental to the part. As Marnia Lazreg has written, and I quote, to unveil women at a well-choreographed ceremony added to the event a symbolic dimension that dramatized the constant feature of the Algerian occupation by France, its obsession with women. To France Fanon, the politics of unveiling were an element in a larger politics which described as thus, and I quote, at an initial stage, there was a pure and simple assumption of the well-known formula, let's win over the woman and the rest will follow. It enabled, he said, the colonial administration to define a precise political doctrine. If we want to destroy the structure of Algerian society, its capacity for resistance, we must first of all conquer the woman. We must go and find them behind the veil where they hide themselves and the house where the men keep them out of sight. And just, you know, as a parenthesis, all the colonial roots of unveiling Muslim women will later be forgotten. 
And in that, you know, in that context, I want to discuss also a, a, an implementing case in, in the question of you know, feminism and colonization and decolonization that become a, uh, became a cause célèbre. The last political trial of the Algerian war, the trial of uh, Jamila Boupacha. It allowed me to bring together you know, sexuality, decolonization, white virginity, and national feminism. Uh, Jamila Boupacha was a 20-year-old Algerian woman who was accused of wanting to set a bomb in a brasserie, and she was arrested in February 1960. She was detained in circuit by the army, beaten, tortured, and raped with a toothbrush and beer bottles until she fainted. When the lawyer and feminist Gisela Nimi, joined by Boupacha brother, first met Jamila in March 1960, she said she felt deeply upset. Boupacha was repeating over and over, I am nothing anymore. I should be thrown away. Because she had been raped, she was convinced that she could, would never be accepted back in her society and by her family. Returning to Paris, Alimi contacted Simone de Beauvoir, who you know, was known for her position to the war in Algeria. They agreed to transform the case of, the case of Boupacha in an example of what led rape of women and violation of fundamental rights. Rape and loss of virginity became central in that context. In June 1960, uh, Beauvoir published a text in Le Monde in which he insisted on uh, Boupacha virginity, that the rape you know, was compounded by the fact that she was a virgin. Beauvoir and Alimi created in June a committee of defense of Jamila Boupacha with people like Sartre, Aragon, Elsa Triolet, Aimé Césaire, Jacques Lacan, and many other you know, important intellectuals of the time. In July, Alimi obtained thanks to Simone Veil, who will be known you know, as the one who will defend the law for uh, decriminalization, abortion, and, and contraception. So she obtained the transfer of Boupacha to a French prison uh, where Boupacha joined other Algerian women who had been tried and condemned to death. In 1961, Beauvoir and Alimi published a collection of testimony of support, uh, which was called Pour Jamila Boupacha. Um, it's very well known, the portrait of Jamila Boupacha by Picasso. In the essay signed by Beauvoir and Alimi, the virginity of the victim was at the center of the argument and her rape was described in detail. Alimi's strategy was, she insisted, to publicly denounce the rape, to show that her confession had been obtained through torture. But during the trial, rape was no longer at the center of her defense. She was, it was even not talking, being talked about. Feminist scholar Vanessa Cotaccioni has argued that the lack of a judicial notion of rape, because rape was recognized as a crime in France only in 1980, forbade it to be brought in the tribunal. And this was why, she said, French feminist intellectual remain on the field of political justice and the denunciation of the interference by the army in the tribunal. I want to go further and you know, suggest that Haim defense, when she remained within the frame of a legal, of the French legal system, which could not accept a trial on rape, torture, and colonial war, once she accepted the legal frame imposed by the French state, she could not effectively, in case, deploy the defense she had imagined. Accommodation with the French colonial imperial national legal system did not allow a feminist anti-colonial defense. This was also why other lawyers had, during the German war, developed a defense of rupture in, in which they denied the legitimacy of French tribunal to judge Algerian fighters. In other words, when Alimi accepted the French of the French colonial system, she could only denounce torture as a moral, you know, as a violation of moral principle, but not sexual torture. And she could not, you know, uh, 
using virginity as an aggravating element led Alimi in that trap. Rape was a war crime regardless of Bupasha virginity. And referring to ethnographic studies that show, that show the terrible consequence of the loss of virginity in Algerian society, put on the same level French torturer, an Algerian father and brother. Indeed, Alimi, uh, she, she repeated that, you know, in, even in recent interviews, she had said that furthermore, she said again, furthermore, she was a 20-year-old virgin and so forth and so forth. Okay. To support an argument, she used ethnographic studies that spoke of the importance of women virginity in the Algerian society based on a colonial understanding of male-female relation and a racist vision of Arab masculinity. This argument, which did not bring anything to the denunciation of rape as a weapon of war, nor on colonialism and women, you know, this argument were culturalist. Further, it must be noted that Bupasha, like so many other young Algerian women involved in the struggle for independence, had spoken many times about the chastity that existed between women and men in the underground. They slept in the same room, shared the same food, the same hiding. I was never afraid to be alone with a man or woman, remember. There was a kind of revolutionary purity. With, without idealizing this, you know, uh, you know that, that reality that Father Bedal Marabat will complicate later, I want nonetheless to point to the existence of a revolutionary love between sisters and brother. And the fact that their chastity, the insistence on chastity, disputed French colonial discourse that had made all Algerian rapists and Algerian women either victim or prostitute. The women, the Algerian women, engaged in the struggle for liberation, whether they were Muslim, Jewish, Catholic, communists, were described, always described by the French state as monstrous and with a loose sexuality. Because they were disrupting the racial and sexual colonial order, it disturbed also revolutionary men as well. But the war was also a moment of reinvention and reconfiguration of relations between race and gender and their identity. Most women, in fact, have insisted, you know, that they never had any problem with, their, with Algerian men. And the consistent resort to the cultural, as if knowing something about women and Islam or the meaning of religious ritual, ignore, in fact, the complex entanglement in which women were all implicated. Colonial feminism was still hard at work. An Algerian woman on trial refused to evoke and discuss their virginity in the space of the French tribunal. They did not want their denuded body to be put on display and did not want culturalist argument, the idealization of virginity in Muslim culture, be used to undermine their struggle. They wanted to set themselves, uh, they wanted to set themselves a primary objective of their liberation. They show themselves in arms, and I had some image, but you know, partly. And as you know, those who have seen the Battle of Algi, you know that how it was used. So this was what happened. You know, two very important feminists, Alimi and Beauvoir, and other. You know, I, I, you know, I, I don't have the time to get into. Were very. I mean, both were, were supported women, uh, uh, Algerian nationalists, supported particularly women in that struggle. But you know, when there was a moment where effectively it stopped their possibility of understanding, you know, uh, the analysis of what colonialism had done to women and how colonialism has transformed the way in which we understand women's rights. They could not uh, go that far. At Tochepa and Christine Ross have shown with the end of the war in Algeria in 1962, a second political and cultural reconfiguration occurred of France. France became really fully a European country without a colonial past. 
I will, you know, go over uh, different uh, other events that happen at the time, which are things, you know, really a very important matrix for, you know, the emergence of the women's liberation movement in the 1960s, but that were erased. I just want to quote, you know, a remark uh, of uh, uh, M. Césaire in his letter of resignation to the French Communist Party in 1956, uh, which I think is really permanent for my discussion on, you know, memory and national feminism. And Césaire said, uh, there is a veritable Copernican revolution to be imposed here, so ingrained in Europe from the extreme right to the extreme left. Is the habit of doing for us, arranging for us, thinking for us. In short, the habit of challenging our possession of this right to initiative of which I have just spoken, which is, at the end of the day, the right to personality. When in 1967-1968 women's group began to mate, the matrix of decolonization was forgotten. What I emerged during the war in Algeria, the link between colonization and a certain understanding of women's rights, the tension between women's liberation in Europe and the global south, and consequently the politicization of generation of women slowly disappeared. When the new women's liberation movement emerged in France, the issue of racism, colonialism, and imperialism was displaced. So it was happening in the US or elsewhere. It was not happening in Europe and in France. In their testimony, members of the women's liberation movement remember that they were reading Fanon texts from the Black Panthers Party or from Black women, but this reading did not produce a self-reflection on the French situation and analysis of white privilege in France. The, the women's leave adopted the mutilated cartography of postcolonial republicanism. In the first publication, the author declared that, I quote, women live like a colonized people within the people. The enemy they wrote that was sexism and patriarchy. There was not a word on French imperialism in the Indian Ocean, the Pacific, the Caribbean, or South American. It's also important to reflect on the first action, you know, which has been described in the media and in the history of the narrative on the French women's liberation movement as an act of birth. Uh, it deserves to be examined for what it drew as a genealogy of memory and where this memory are located. It was a drop-off on August 26, 1970, of a spray of flower at the Arc of Triumph for the wife of the unknown soldiers. Soldier, sorry. The choice of the Arc de Triomphe embodied the mutilated cartography of Republican postcoloniality that rests on the idea of the nation. As you may know, the Arc de Triomphe was an idea of Napoleon and was built and inaugurated by the King Louis Philippe to celebrate a nation whose unity was built on war. And the, the, <coughs> the Arc is dedicated to the war of the revolution and also the war of Napoleon. And Napoleon, as you do know, re-established slavery in the French colony in 1802. Slavery had been abolished in 1784 and was reestablished by Napoleon in 1802 and finally abolished in 1848. So the woman, this woman wanted to protest an erasure and rescribe the existence of the forgotten among the forgotten, the woman, but that choice traced the space and time of the struggle, the French nation, and the temporality was a construction you know, of the nation's war. Colonized women, soldiers and their women were, of course, forgotten. But I cannot fully, you know, accuse this woman. The history of slavery was practically ignored in France until the late 1990s. In fact, 1998, 
France uh, started to you know, realize that there had been a, a slave power. Usually it was the British and the American. And the end of the war in Algeria had been presented at the end of coloniality. It was you know, the cultivation of an epistemology of ignorance. In Liberation des Femmes Année Zero, the texts written by women in West Germany, England, USA were translated. Again, racism and imperialism happen elsewhere in the world. In the uh, newspaper, in, the, in their paper, Le Torchon Brûle, The Rag is Burning, where women were said to be the slave of slaves, essay appeared on the capitalist exploitation of women, on the right to abortion and contraception, on women's struggle in other countries, but nowhere there was an analysis of structural racism, racial capitalism, racial patriarchy, and imperialism in France. When in 1972 a young woman was put on trial because she had aborted a lawyer, Gisela Limi, of the Jamila Bupasha trial, denounced a system of class, but she did not draw an intersection with what was happening then in the French overseas department, Réunion Martinique and Guadeloupe, where the state was conducting aggressive campaign for abortion and sterilization of women. In, France, in Réunion, in fact, in 1971, at the time when in France we were really at the full mobilization for abortion and contraception in the street with manifesto and demonstration in the street, at the same moment in Réunion, I learned what was revealed that thousands of women have been forcibly and without consent aborted and sterilized. The doctors were all white and Frenchmen, and they were not condemned. Whereas in France, at the same time, doctors, nurses, and women who had facilitated abortion were heavily punished. Whereas the pill was sold with many precautions in France, it was liberally distributed in this department, even to young women underage. The French state clearly did not want racialize women to have children, and I could quote, you know, unless. Through the intense mobilization for the liberation of abortion and contraception in France, not once this apparently contradictory situation was evoked. Not once despite the fact that national newspaper had publicized the 1971 scandal. Further, in 1978, when Gisela Limi again defended two women victims of rape, the first publicized trial of the sort, rape in Algeria was not invoked. Rape no longer had a colonial history. I want to be clear. The women's liberation of what I'm talking was, of course, extremely diverse. And for many groups, it was radical in its anti-patriarchal, anti-capitalist, and anti-imperialist position. But the construction of the space and time of the French Republic, especially of the Fifth Republic, which, as you know, was born in 1958 out of the chaos of the colonial war, and had practiced torture, sanctified rape and dispossession, and had fought a war that it has refused in them as such, was never questioned. It contributed to, you know, the uh, reinvention of France, and again, who was French, and of gender, race, and class. So this was, and an, an this, despite the fact that early, as early as 1972, they were migrant and refugee women who had created group, and in 1978, the coordination of black women was also, you know, created with followed by a manifesto in which black women declare their autonomy and criticize the way in which uh, white feminism was, was reconstructing a genealogy of memory that we are absolutely, totally European, totally forgetting what has happened elsewhere and how effectively the struggle of a female slave and colonized women had contributed to women's rights worldwide and to the liberation of women. 
And in 1978, Awatiam had published La Parole aux Négresses, Parole to Negro Women, where she refuted, you know, the analogy made by some feminists between the oppression of white women in Europe and the oppression of black people in the US and the fact of, you know, that rape was in fact equally distributed in the world. So my question is, why for the French women's labor, was, you know, which denounced at the time rising fascism in Italy and Germany, organized solidarity with women in prison, on strike with sex workers, with women in Salvador, Egypt, Chile, why that same movement did not look at racism at all? There were interventions in Africa, there were, you know, everything, you know, was going on. Uh, the nuclear tests in the Pacific, the forced abortion, the campaign of repression, all this, you know, we are known and, and being discussed in France, but it did not touch the women's liberation movement. And slowly, the women's liberation movement became a struggle for women's rights as individual rights. In the 1980s, an institutionalization of feminism under the auspices of the first socialist movement marked a turning point. It's not that institutionalization is always for the worse. It, it is that it was linked with the politics of colonial pacification for which French socialists are known. Thus, it was remarkable that the most important movement of the early 1980s, the massive mobilization of 100,000 young women and men from post-colonial migration, the war, the March for Equality of 1983, which is, okay, had no resonance in the women's liberation movement. What Césaire had analyzed in 1950, the boomerang effect of colonialism, and in 1956, the deeply entrenched paternalism of the French left was never examined by French feminists. The nationalization of feminism of France was not only you know, the consequence of the blind spot of the absolutely erasure of, of the colonial past and of the question of decolonization. It was also, I mean, there were other elements and we could discuss, for instance, the academic invention of French feminism, which is taught in US uh, you know, university, which totally dehistoricized de women's struggle and gave a wrong history of women's struggle. And, you know, okay. So in the late 1980s, French feminism suddenly resurfaced as national feminism with a controversy around the, the veil. The liberation of women as a struggle for social justice was no longer the goal. Rather, it became central to save women of color from men of color, as Gayatri Spivak has written. Muslim women with a veil started to embody women impression and subjugation. They were only seen as victims of their father, of their brother, of their religion, and of antiquated view of what is a modern woman. They had to be saved also because they threatened the Republican secularism as in founding principle of equality of women and men. I'm not sure that women, French feminism who feel good about saving Muslim women from Muslim men are also asking you know, for a global redistribution of wealth or contemplating, you know, sacrificing their own consumption radically so that African and Asian women could have some chance of having what I do believe should be a universal uh, human right, the right for freedom from the structural violence of global inequality and from the ravage of war. Further, in France, a woman dies every three days in the end of her husband or companion. 80% of underpaid part-time jobs are occupied by women, and every 40 minutes a woman is raped and women are still paid 27% less than men for the same job and same training. Men who claim recently to be for the emancipation of women voted last week against a law that would have forbidden men convicted of violence against women to be elected. I do not want to argue, though, that the struggle around the control of the body of Muslim women is simply a tactic to mask 
urgent economic system. There is a persistent of a colonial ideology that the West must save other people. And as Leila Lebrugod has written, when you save someone, you imply that you are saving her from something, you are also saving her to something. In a context where women's rights have been increasingly used by imperialism to justify military intervention and a renationalization of the political in Europe, to legitimize state intervention, to strengthen controlled border to regulate closing and rewriting narrative about Europe, reactivating memories of past debate and struggle, and memory uh, uh, have become central for you know, emerging women's group around a decolonial feminism. They first mobilized in, uh, after following the social riot of 2005 uh, against police violence and, homophobia, and Islamophobia. And this... Uh, so, of course, they were looking at Black Lives Matters, but they were also looking at the fact that in France, not, I mean, in the last year, in the recent years, practically every month, a young man is being killed by the police. And not once, not once, a police officer has been inducted or punished. Not once. So, uh, they, it, it's very important, so this emergent, you know, uh, and, uh, and also the possibility for women to be veiled. So the Ferguson in Paris, and so the translation in French, La Vie des Noirs Cons, Black Lives Matter, and all this demonstration, okay, and in which women have been extremely, on, you know, on, on the vanguard. Here we see a, a black woman, and again, this is a recent uh, uh, young man who was killed by the police, and the police did not even inform the family for almost two days. So, and this was met, all this emergent, I will say, and last October, on October 31st, there was the uh, March of Dignity and Against Racism, which was launched only on, by racialized women in France, and it was an historical moment, and it was absolutely brutally attacked by French feminists. Um, it was declared to be, you know, racist against the white, anti-French, and anti-secularist. So there is really a, 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 an idea that you know uh, the emergence of this movement is a threat uh, for uh, uh, national feminism. The decolonial uh, feminist movement fragmented yet its existence speak for a renewal of the process of process of decolonization that must occur in Europe. And the first uh, is a denationalization of uh, feminist history and a demand of relocating memories in Europe and in France itself. So it's not about, you know, uh, rewriting the history of the, of the colonies, it's rewriting the history of Europe by showing that you know, the borders of Europe are absolutely, of course, you know, invented to produce an hegemonic narrative. And the, so, the fact that social movement, the social movement such as feminism has been contaminated, you know, by the boomerang effect seems to me a very important. And how this boomerang effect recreate, I mean, a genealogy of memories, of locating memories differently, uh, and even in, in, to the extent that even in the 1970s, today some of the elements of the 1970s, radical 70s, 1970s, are being erased to present a genealogy of memory that is located essentially in a European France and within the border of uh, European liberalism. Thank you.